Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are in Job and John, and, uh, and uh, we are kind of smack dab in the middle of Job, uh, seeing kind of the advice of his friends. And we will finish up most of the advice of at least the first three friends uh, this week. And so uh, we see Bill Dad speak once again. Uh, and we kind of finished off, if you remember from last week, uh, Job has uh, just said to them, like, come on again, all of you, to these guys. And he says, I, I shall not find a wise man amongst you. So Job's friends are obviously not taking this too kindly and are responding with frustration at Job and 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 saying, look, Job, you might be unrighteous because calamity and death only visit their unrighteous. That must be you, Job. So in their theological framework and their advice here, um, that's that's their that's their viewpoint of why bad things happen is because of only because of sin. And so um, that's that's what they're trying to once again pin on Job. Yeah, and they're becoming a little bit defensive because Job is criticizing them and the words that they're speaking. And I mean, his critic his criticism is valid, but he's also a man who's grieving, and they're just not attending to him very sensitively. So there's a lot of dynamics in here. So I think we're just seeing a lot of, you know, the fleshly defensive nature come out of Bildad. Yeah. And, and Job gets his defensive on his end too. It's like, how long you guys, will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? He's just getting so frustrated with them. And then he says things like, even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains with myself. He's like, look, like I might've sinned. Like, don't judge me for this because if I sin, like I'll own it. It, It's mine. But like, it's it's still not true. And and Job speaks of his suffering again. He wonders why his friends just don't help him in his suffering. Um, And even more why God just isn't giving him uh, an audience, a, a chance to, to, to interact with and he just wishes at this point even others would write down his accusations like would, would, would that other people would record this this moment for him there's something really powerful for us to understand and grasp in the way that Job in this chapter specifically is addressing his grief. He continues to know what is true, that his redeemer lives and that God is eternal and sovereign, even in the midst of Job's Job's suffering and really feeling the loss of all things. And so we can see here really clearly the difference between what Job is feeling, which is he's feeling like he's been abandoned by God, but what he also knows to be true and that God is eternal and lives. So there are ways for us to lament and grieve in which we acknowledge what we are feeling, but there's also a component where we need to hold fast to what we know to be true, even if we don't feel it in the moment. And we see Job do it here really well. Yeah. And then so far chimes in once again, he speaks to those that are pretty well to do or, or kind of well off yet because of their wickedness, all of it comes crashing down. Now, so far doesn't explicitly say that that's what Job's going through here, but it's essentially the story from his perspective of Joe, you had a lot, it all came crashing down. Uh, maybe Job, you're like one of them. And so your life seemed blessed, but because you were so wicked, it all came crashing down. But once again, like if we remember chapter one and, and is that Job is blameless and that mm-hmm. even in all this struggle, he did not sin. So, so far, once again, is not true. He's not speaking what is actually true in this moment. Yeah. I initially thought he, he was kind of wrestling with who God was in this story, but really I just feel like we're seeing hard hearts against understanding and knowing God. They have made so many assumptions about how God works so that they can fit their idea of God and their control of their own circumstances into some sort of little box that really um, is totally wrong. 
Yeah. And, and one of the questions that many people approach this book with is like, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And in the next chapter, Job kind of flips that question mm-hmm. around a little bit. And Job's like, look, wicked people prosper all the time and, and wicked people have things that go really well for them. Like, why does that happen? And so, um, it, it, he's even bringing up sort of the opposite here and he wants his friends to console him, not accuse him. And he's kind of pointing out that his friend's advice doesn't even hold up in reality that there's, that there's, um, not only does bad things happen to good people, but good things happen to bad people. And what do we do with that? And he's kind of laying that question out for us in this chapter too. Yeah, the everything written here, the comments of his friends are all written from a perspective that has absolutely no understanding of grace, which is a free gift and free mercy given to us from God that, of course, we see through Jesus Christ. But the friends are outplaying a world where there is no grace and mercy, where it's just justice. Um, and they're trying to understand how God works within that. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't. Work. Yeah. And then Eliphaz chimes in and he's like, is this for fear of you that he reproves or actually in the text, it can also be accused that he accuses you. And Eliphaz is a convinced that God's the accuser here. But once again, like the opening section is that Satan's the accuser and these friends also are acting that role. So if you're starting to confuse God with the devil, you're probably no longer doing good theology. Um, and, and by the end of the chapter, he sort of like says to Job, there is no end to your iniquities. And so like there's a, there's even this amplification in Eliphaz against Job. He's like turning Job into this monster uh, in his own mind, trying to find a way to justify why this innocent man is suffering. And he just can't seem to get his theological mind around it. Right. And all he believes is that if Job repents, everything will go away. And Job's not repenting because he continues to claim that he hasn't yeah, done anything right. wrong. And and then Job sort of just has this struggle once again. Like he he's saying, I, I have departed like, I haven't departed the commandments from my lips. I've treasured the words of my mouth, but but Job's wrestling. He's like, I want this audience with God, but I also know God is powerful. Like there's a fear of God that seems to be steadfast in, in Job's responses. And he's just wrestling through those two things. And we're kind of in chapter, uh, the, the, um, uh, well, he'll spend chapter 24 pointing out that they, even the wicked, should they prosper, will get away with, um, or get away with things to not ultimately get away. So he's, he still has some understanding that there's some justice out there. He just doesn't totally know it. Like he knows it's there. Even the previous statement of like, I know my redeemer still lives, but I don't understand it right now. Yeah. He wants to stand before the Lord and take up his case with God. And he understands God's character, knowing that God is going to pay attention to him, that God is unchangeable and that God's presence is terrifying. Um, He acknowledges that he really doesn't understand what God is doing, but he sure wishes he did. And don't we all feel that way a lot of the time? Yeah. And then Bildad comes in with sort of lofty theological terms, the, the sort of look, no one's righteous, which once again, it's, it's a true statement, Yeah, but it's not really helpful in this moment. Um, and it's not really dealing with what is actually going on on the ground with Job uh, and, and why these things have happened to Job. Yeah. yeah. And we see, you know, again, you can make this kind of gospel connection here, this type of Christ and that Christ suffered though he was. No one is righteous except for Christ. He is the righteous one who suffered more than any of us could understand because of our sin. And then Job replies once again. Um, and it feels like Job is sort of full on sarcastic to his friends here. He's like, oh, how wise you are, how much you've helped me. This, I was a helpless man, but your amazing wisdom has totally helped. Um, and then he started turns the corner and goes off on God's majesty. How God created everything that we see that, that if God really spoke wisdom to them, that would be like thunder and power. We couldn't possibly understand it. 
And I like, you know, we're going into this more extensive discussion around how Job would define wisdom and the wisdom from God. But what we see here is that his friends uh, call what they believe to be wisdom, but it's wisdom of the world. It doesn't take into consideration the mystery of God's ways. And then there's sort of a, a pause at the beginning of chapter 27. And and this is where we should expect Zophar to add his final sort of accusation of the sort of cycle that we've seen so far. And it's almost as written as if like Job stopped looked at so far for waiting for him to say something. And then he's like, all right, I'll just keep talking. Um, and he says, look, my, my lips will not speak falsehood. My tongue will not utter deceit. And Job's saying the, the, the exact opposite of what his friends are doing, uh, that they're, they're uttering falsehoods, like things that are probably not actually true about Job. Um, things that God has certainly said, it's not true about Job. And so um, Job's like, I'm, I'm not going to open my mouth if I don't know what I'm going to say is true. So I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Um, and Job continues pointing out that some of his friends, um, say are true and some of the stuff that they do say is true and he he agrees with them on some of the stuff but at this point we're kind of left with all the questions and the confusion that some like they've all pointed out you know sometimes bad things happen to bad people and sometimes good things happen to good people and also sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad people so what do we do with all that and i think that's where we turn the corner into 28 yeah and those are the questions that we continue to ask as well yeah and, and we get to 28, and this is, um, if you remember from the opening um, podcast, this is the um, Job itself is one pretty concrete chiasm, um, with chapter 28 at the center. And and at the center of it, Job goes into this discussion saying, look, as humans, like we've, we've been able to mine and to find all sorts of incredible things. We can mine the hills for resources. We have found all sorts of things that other creatures haven't even found. Like we've done this amazing thing, but wisdom, humans, humans have never been able to mine. Like we've never, and all the mine shafts we've gone into, we've never encountered wisdom. Mm-hmm. We've never been able to find it because only God knows where wisdom comes from. And in this giant book where so much of the conversation does involve around suffering, the center of it is, is pointing out that what we really lack in all this whole conversation is wisdom. And one way to talk about God's wisdom, at least I think in, a, in relation to the to the Job story, is, is perspective. Like, true wisdom belongs to God. Only he knows where to find it. And only he knows how to unearth the amazing treasures of really the divine perspective. Like, like Job is not going to end with an explanation here. No, the whole drama is not given a, a full resolution. He doesn't really give... Um, uh, an explanation as to as to why Job is going through what he's going through. We're left with a statement that wisdom belongs to God, and we don't always get the answers to our suffering. We don't always know the purpose of mm-hmm. our sufferings. There's there's all sorts of possibilities that can lie behind the sufferings. Even something that sounds as silly as Satan and God making a bed. We we don't always get that perspective because that's God's and God's alone, uh, and we're kind of left with that a little bit in the explanation here. Yeah. So we see the the value of wisdom and we see the source of godly wisdom here. It just makes me think of James, which talks about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And, you know, we see man can do so much in the world, yet wisdom is not found in building or creating or transforming the earth, but in fearing God. That's where it begins and ends is fearing God and understanding who God is compared to who we are. And we lose wisdom, become we become fools when we start to put ourselves on the same level or believe we have the same understanding that God does. Yeah, and and Job responds sort of the he, he sort of concludes that he's done all that God's asked, and then and he sort of still stands there going, God, I need a better explanation. Like I want an explanation more than that. Um, Job isn't happy with the sort of pain and embarrassing nature of this position, um, and and he he recognizes that wisdom is only found in God, but he's sort of like, so God, help me on this. And that's what he's sort of left with. 
Yeah. He laments those early days when people looked up to him and admire him and wanted to be around him. And now they're all kind of mocking him and, and making fun of him. And, and he's righteous in this, which is a little bit different than what I'm about to say. But I think we should be careful about doing this to people of prominence who lose their positions. Yeah. Uh, let's make sure we don't kick people while they're down, even if we think they they maybe earned it or deserved it. Let's um, ask the Lord for, for wisdom and compassion and yeah. empathy. And Job's final appeal, once again, is pointing out, like, look, God, I've been righteous. Like, I've taken care of the poor. I've done these all these obedient things. Like, I've, I've lived up to what it should be defined maybe in his mind as a good life. So, so God, why? Why did this happen? Yeah, he pleads with God that the true character of his life would be revealed and properly judged. And then in a turn of fate, we as we jump into the New Testament, um, we, we talk about a man who uh, is suffering. And one of the questions the disciples ask is like, why is this happening? Um, that's that's a legitimate uh, question from Job and, and a question that comes out here. And, and uh, Jesus kind of turns it on them as well, the, as if that almost like they're asking the wrong questions. Like, don't ask who's to blame. Like, let, let's ask what, what, what God can do about it. Um, and, and sort of, and we see a pickup of the blind and the dark and the seeing and the light comparison that we've already seen in previous chapters. It's just continuously being drawn out. Um, and there's, there's interesting metaphors, Genesis two and Naaman and sort of the spit and the clay and the dust and all those kind of things. But, um, Jesus heals this guy, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which would have been a pretty crowded pool, especially if this was still uh, the Sabbath uh, related to the festival week. And, and so this blind man would have walked up to a huge crowd and many of them would have seen sort of this moment of healing and he's healed. And, and in some sense, they're like, is this the man? Are we sure that this is the man? And in some sense, he's the same man, but in another sense, he's not. And he, he responds like, um, and he responds with the the phrase that Jesus has been, or John's been using with Jesus the whole time, the, the sort of I am. Um, so his response is actually the name Name of, name of Yahweh to begin with, and but the whole the rest of the chapter uh, is really about this interaction with the Pharisees. I mean, it's probably the more the chunk of text is, is really this interaction about these Pharisees that really want to get to the bottom of this, and and they really keep asking questions. The guys getting frustrated with them, and eventually um, Jesus. Uh, comments on on the Pharisees in this moment, and and basically says like all all those who sort of claim to be without sin are really the the, the, the spiritually blind, and those whose sin is readily apparent who need healing, who who sort of own the fact that they can't see or um, have blindness in them, that those are the ones that Jesus is coming to heal, and it's sort of the the question of well, do we own our our sin? Does, are we people that that raise our hand and say, hey, look, I need healing, mm-hmm. um, and this Pharisee are operating as if they don't, yeah. I was really impacted by paying attention to that question that they ask at the beginning, like Chris referenced, when they asked, whose fault is this that this man is blind? Um, and Jesus's answer is that God is going to display his works in in the blind man. Yeah. So our question as believers shouldn't be, whose fault is this? But it should be, where is God in this and how will he display his glory? So as we have experiences or interactions um, that lead us to want to ask whose fault it is, I just challenge you to kind of step back and say, where is God and how can we see his glory on display in this circumstance? And we move into the conversation of the Good Shepherd. Um, and the chapter break here kind of throws you off, I think, a little bit. But remember the context. Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees here who are accusing him of being sinful and not being who he says he is. So in that context, he, he starts speaking of these sheep and these pens and all this kind of stuff. And I think he really accuses the the, the, the people here. And I think he's picking up on Ezekiel 34. He accuses them, accuses them of being sort of foolish gatekeepers who are, can't tell the difference between a thief and a shepherd, uh, that they are thieves who bring death. And Jesus says the sheepfold gate that 
brings to life, and that they are hired hands who abandon the sheep at the first sign of danger. While Jesus is a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And, uh, and if we remember Ezekiel 34, like God condemns the failed leaders of Israel who have stolen the sheep, they've killed the sheep, caused them to become scattered. And in that text, God says he's going to remove the hired shepherds and replace them uh, with himself and David as shepherds. And so um, Jesus is doing the same thing in, in John 10 that, that um, in, in that text. He condemns the leaders of Israel as thieves, points to himself as the only true shepherd. And so um, I think we're, we're seeing some overtones of Ezekiel 34, but Jesus teaching about who he is as the good shepherd and comparing it to uh, these Pharisees and the leadership in Israel, which only obviously makes these group even matter at him. Mm-hmm. And for these people, for Jesus to say that he's the shepherd is saying that he and not the law is the way to salvation. So, you know, the Jewish leaders retort by emphasize that they follow Moses and not Jesus, but Jesus points out again and again that he is the one that Moses wrote about. So he is the only way to salvation. And even for us today, even if we're not necessarily interacting with the with Jewish people, um, our belief about the exclusivity of how you can be saved is really one of the most offensive things that we believe, but it's central and core. And it doesn't mean we have to be offensive in the way that we share it. Uh, but it's Jesus is very clear that there's, there's a one way to yep. salvation and it's through him. And then uh, Jesus, uh, John changes the setting. We find out we're at the fe- festival of dedication, which uh, in more common vernacular for us is Hanukkah uh, and a celebration of defending. Uh, I mean, that would be a celebration of when they remember that they defended the temple. Uh, they rejected these Greeks and kicked them out of their nation. They restored a sense of religious order in Jerusalem. Um, sort of uh, this, this sort of moment to s- set up um, almost the, 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 the nation again. Uh, and so they would be celebrating that and, and there would be a heightened sense of sort of the Messianic King kind of coming overtones to the festival. Um, and, and so some of the calls from this crowd reflect that, but Jesus decided to circumstance these sort of calls for revolution that the crowd has for him. And he starts talking about him and the father and how they're one. And he does exactly what the father wants, wants which is kind of throwing them off and it, it causes them to accuse him of blasphemy as if he's calling himself God. But then he, then he kind of points out like, look, we call ourselves like sons of God, like is a phrase that can be used more than just here. So he's kind of dealing with their blasphemy, but then he goes, all right, if you want to accuse me of something, like look at my actions, do my actions actually reflect who God is? And, 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 and he's kind of pointing them in that direction as well. Like that's that, if you want to accuse me of blasphemy, you better be able to point out that I am not being reflective of who who God actually is, and mm-hmm. you're, and and we're reminded again, like in the sort of end of this, so he ends up back out where the where the uh, John the Baptist was, that John was not the Messiah, but only pointed to the Messiah, and sort of we get this little end cap to this text. I really appreciate the line when he says, you don't believe me, but you believe the works. It shows that Jesus is priming them to believe everything once it all comes together after the resurrection. And I think sometimes for us, our journey to faith and trust in God can be a process where curiosity happens. There's certain things we believe. There's certain things we question. And little by little, it's going to come together and it'll click at some point. So wherever you are in your journey towards faith, keep persevering in the questions you're asking and and believe with faith the things that, that you do believe and continue to lean in and ask the questions you have. Yep. And then uh, we transition to uh, a pretty famous story, uh, the death of Lazarus. And by the way, kind of note that John John's gospel seems to assume that you've already read the other gospels because um, we're like, you know, there's Mary who, you know, mm-hmm. did the thing with the anointing. And he, we haven't been introduced to Mary yet in John's gospel, but yet um, likely the, the readers or hearers of John's gospel have had access to other stories of Jesus. And so, um, but Jesus has just a tremendous calmness to the start of the story, almost 
ultimately reflective of sort of his sovereignty over all, all the things in the storyline. Um, like he stays knowing full well, Lazarus is going to die and his disciples are anxious about his return to Jerusalem. Like Jesus, you're going to die there. But Jesus is sort of like, look, it's not my time yet. Don't worry, fellas. And we've still got some time, but while we've got time, we've got some work to do. And so, um, and the interaction with the disciples to me is actually a little bit humorous. Like Jesus is like, Hey, let's go wake Lazarus. And they're like, Jesus, if he's sleeping, it's probably like good for him. If he's sick, he should be sleeping. And Jesus is like, Oh, I meant he's dead. And sorry, I wasn't clear earlier. And so, uh, eventually they're like, fine, we'll go and, and may as well die with you in Jerusalem. And so, um, there, there's sort of this humorous kind of little back and forth between him and his disciples, I think in this text. Yeah, I hope you remember that it's Thomas who's like, let's go, that we're going to die with him. You know, we give Thomas a hard time because he was like, I'm not going to believe Jesus was resurrected until I see the holes in his hands. But we also see a lot of faith in Thomas. Yeah. So don't don't give him a bad rap for doubting Jesus because he does some really faith-filled things. And the other thing for us to note is that Jesus, this is Jesus' turn to go into Jerusalem where he will die. And he does it. He gets ready to lay down his life for a friend because he goes to give life to Lazarus, at least temporarily until eternal life, um, in order that others may believe yeah and then uh he ends up uh coming to the village where uh, lazarus is and ends up interacting with with mary and martha and, and i kind of love this interaction because there's two different women they say the exact same thing to jesus but he has a very different response to each and the first one with martha he, she sort of comes she has some sort of faith in jesus and 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 it's though it certainly started to pin down exactly what she understands she understands that there's a resurrection in all things and, um but doesn't seem to totally understand jesus's ability to resurrect like right now and and i mean once again it's not until it's something jesus has done a ton of at this moment and so um but Jesus uses this to teach her further, like who he actually is, that he is the resurrection. Not only is he pointing out that he can be the one to resurrect Lazarus, but he's foreshadowing that he he will be the one uh, at, at through his own death and resurrection that, that will point to what true resurrection looks like. And I, I think Martha's confession, um, it, in other gospels, Peter becomes like this kind of turning point where Peter uh, confesses Jesus up in um, Caesarea Philippi and and says, Jesus, you're the Christ and Messiah. And then the narratives tend to shift. Uh, I would argue Martha sort of the, the, the pinpoint of, of John's gospel in some ways where mm-hmm. she has this confession and she doesn't totally understand it. <clears throat> Just like Peter, she doesn't fully understand what kind of Messiah he's going to be, which is totally fine. It, it to, to be in that state. Yes. I mean, o- only the demons probably understand some of what Jesus is about to do. And, and so, <clears throat> But yet, at this point, and this miracle becomes a big turning point where um, basically all the leadership of Jerusalem have had enough after this moment. And so um, Martha's confession, I think, becomes a little bit like Peter's confession in the storyline. You know, one of the things that I've seen and we've talked about reading John is all of the different dialogues and conversations Jesus has with people. Without Nicodemus, we wouldn't have John 3.16 or without the woman at the well, we wouldn't have heard so early on that Jesus is the Messiah. And here, because of some questions Martha has, we learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Had Lazarus not died, we wouldn't have had that statement, which is really the foundation to what we believe. And so when you have faced difficult circumstances in your life, um, where greater truths could be illustrated to you and those around you, how are you responding? And are you willing to lay down your life and your plans that Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, may reveal himself his, Himself as such through your life? I just I love that story, and I love what we learned through a simple dialogue that Jesus and Martha had. 
Yeah. And then he interacts with Mary who is grieving. She says the same thing, but in this, he doesn't go into a larger theological conversation about resurrection or anything along those lines. He simply kind of goes with her to the tomb. He weeps with this woman Mm -hmm. and is there in her grieving. And so um, he kind of does what Job's friends should have done, which is simply be there and to continue to weep and to, uh, and to, to be in that moment. Yeah. I appreciate that. This is such a good reminder that our savior doesn't give us cookie cutter responses, but he meets us where we're at and gives us what we need. And I think it's also worth noting that the footnote in your Bible around Jesus, what will point out that there's, it's a sort of an, an indignant weeping. I think he's, you know, he's just seen Lazarus die or he hasn't seen Lazarus die, but he's there and he's feeling the grief of death and he knows that death is not supposed to be what is. And so he's grieving at the loss that the world around him and that he himself is about to experience. Yep. And then, uh, Jesus resurrects Lazarus. Uh, most point out, um, that other uh, than his own resurrection, like this is the pinnacle moment in John's gospel. And, um, in some level, this continues to explain the crowds on Palm Sunday and the, 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 where Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin eventually plot to kill him. Like, this is sort of the change here. And uh, other theologians talk about raises of Lazarus as this pivotal miracle. They consider it the, the resurrection that will lead to Jesus' death. And um, Jesus does exactly what Martha's interaction with him was about. And Martha comes confessing, saying, like, God grants you what you ask him. And I know there'll be a resurrection. And we see sort of the personal prayer of Jesus in this moment. We're, we're kind of told that much more. We know Jesus could have raised him from the dead in all sorts of different ways, but where Martha's statement is sort of confirmed in this moment of, of Jesus asking his father to, to do this work and, and then the resurrection happening. And this is sort of like a, a first type or first mm-hmm. fruits of resurrection. And Lazarus is going to die again. He'll be one of the few people in this world that have experienced death twice. But um, Jesus uh, we will see in Jesus that death is not the final answer altogether. And, and that yeah. the sort of resurrection that Jesus has done will be done for all who believe in him. So um, we will, we will get a more eternal version of what happens to Lazarus. Yeah. And there's some connections here to Jesus's deity and even Genesis one, because when God spoke life burst forth in creation, and then we see Jesus speaking and life coming forth, we see the glory of our creator. Yep. Uh, he not only brings sight to the blind, but he brings life to the dead. Yeah, and and can intercede between a a verdict of death uh, Mm. and a verdict of life on behalf of his father. And so, um, and then uh, obviously this, uh, as I just said, is kind of a turning point. The temple leadership are having are just done with Jesus Mm -hmm. at this point, Uh, and they fear that in some ways that Jesus might be leading some sort of insurrection, using miracles to capture the attention of his people, and they think Rome is eventually going to come and snuff out whatever this Jesus movement is, and in so doing just kind of take over all things and they're worried about their loss of power. They're worried about Rome, uh, all this kind of stuff. And they kind of formulate in some ways, even though they don't know what they're fully doing, that if they just let Jesus be this insurrectionist that, that Rome will kill, uh, that will cause them to, to deal with this more than attacking them as a whole nation. Uh, and in some ways they, they kind of put a bounty then on Jesus's head from then on out. And it's pretty crazy because Caiaphas actually prophesied basically Christ would die for the people and yet he's fighting against him. I mean, they just don't want to lose their power and their position. Yeah. Yeah. God, God can speak through or prophesy, uh, through people that are pretty broken or don't know him at all. I mean, it's the same thing with uh, the king in, uh, of Egypt back in uh, Abraham's time of, of having these visions and understanding God's intention, even when Abraham's not. Yeah. And the Babylonians. I mean, I think that's probably one of the main meta meta narrative or meta themes that has come out of this study is yeah. that whether you are willing or unwilling, God is going to use you. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Psalm 23. So this is probably everybody's most familiar psalm. Uh, it's just... It's so rich. The imagery is so rich. So I'd encourage you to read it slowly or listen to it and just picture it all in your imagination. See what it looks like for God to provide and care for you and um, to create a table in the midst of your enemies and lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. It's so good. Yeah. And and as you're creating that visual, I might skew your visual a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and the reason why, uh, and I've kind of grown in a little bit of my understanding uh, of this. and 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 that's because like, the original authors and intentions, like where shepherds shepherd in the Middle East, like farmland's a premium because it's it's the area west of the mountains of Jerusalem, and like there's only so much farmland to go around, and so shepherds tend to shepherd in what's considered a wilderness, which is, if you look at it, it is not very green, it's not very verdant, it's not a, a ton of water, it's not any of those things, um, but. The shepherds know where the little tufts of grass can be. They know where the little water um, runoffs tend to puddle uh, between rainstorms and, and the still waters tend to be. Um, and so uh, I think sometimes we have this very uh, alfalfa, um, Irish green pasture kind of picture. Um, and maybe I'll include a few pictures in, in the show notes of of just kind of where they are. And, and so... It's sometimes we, we lead to God providing mm-hmm. all this abundance, and that's a very Western way of sometimes seeing it, versus God knowing just what we need and is able to provide that. Um, because to a sheep, like you have to trust your shepherd to lead you to these things. And and it's a good shepherd, and he knows where these little green places are, and he knows where these little puddles are. But it's not going to be abundance, but he knows where they are. And he knows as you're wandering through these curvy wadis, he knows how to protect you in the midst of that. And and you can't see very far ahead of you, and you have to trust your shepherd. And so um, it's such a, it's such a I, I would argue, a deeper picture of probably of what mm-hmm. Psalm 23 sh- should be presenting to us of this, this, this total dependence. Uh, on the one who does care enough to provide and, and and to provide the things as we need them, not just totally in abundance and what we just want and 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 for us to just eat all day long, but but for us to to, to continue to trust him around each corner. Yeah, teaching us dependence. And in Psalm thirty-five, at least the first half of it or so. Um. Yeah, it's like this imprecatory psalm from David. He seems to be ready for God to deal with his enemies. Yeah, and he's not contending. David's not contending for himself, but asking God to contend for him. So are we? Are there circumstances in your life where you need to do the same? And instead of trying to stand up for yourself, ask the Lord to contend for you. Yep, and then Psalm 119, somewhere in the middle. Um, I just, yeah, I love Psalm 119. I say this, I think every (laughs) single time we've talked about it, but there's a line in here that says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me. And it just really gave me pause. I think about how, how often that if we didn't have affliction, we wouldn't seek comfort from God, but his faithfulness is what leads us to find comfort from him through our affliction. Yeah. And there's a constant back and forth. And this happens throughout this whole Psalm of like, there's a whole section where he's really just praising the word of God. How God stays by His word, how good His word is, then that's some anguish over His adversaries, and then He returns and starts talking about the word again, and that back and forth certainly happens in that section. So next week, so in Job, ask yourself: Does God answer Job's question about suffering, and how does Job end up finding peace as you continue to read Job? And in the New Testament, I'd encourage you to follow phrases about laying down your life, or losing your life, or death and life and see if you can find any trends on what love and laying down your life looks like. Again, John talks in a lot of cycles, so we see a lot of repeated imagery or words. So pay attention to those specific ones this next week. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see a language around Job repenting in the next week. And it's, it's a fair question to ask of, all right, what, what exactly does Job repent from or repent of? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it, I think it's there. See if you can kind of catch it. And I certainly have some ideas we'll talk through next week, but, um, what, what is it that he's turning from? And then New Testament, uh, we're going to get anointings. We're going to get washings. Uh, so it, just do it. Maybe if you have time, do a little bit of homework of like, what does oil anointing look like? What, what does it symbolize, uh, in, in ancient world? Like, mm. cause there's a lot of layers to, to oil anointings or even washings. And so we've seen some of that in the text, but there might be even more to, to draw out. So that's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.